Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rutterford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, and fellow hippie. We're here to talk about all things hip dysplasia, to build a community, to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It really helps others to find it too. If you have any questions or feedback, please email me at laura at helpforhipdysplasia.com. I also just wanted to let you know that I am now on Patreon with my library of hip-friendly Pilates and mobility classes, my Stand Stronger program, and lots more useful hip-friendly tools. If you want to have a look at this, check this out at patreon.com forward slash help for hip dysplasia, or you can find it in the link in my Instagram bio or on my website. Let's get on with the show. Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I am absolutely thrilled today to be able to introduce you to Natalia Sylvester. Hi Natalia. Hi Laura, how are you? I'm so excited to be able to speak to you. Um, This has been in the making, this this podcast, for a little while now. Um, We connected back on Instagram a little while back when I learned about your upcoming book, which we will absolutely get to talking about very shortly. But yeah, so I'm really happy to connect with you today, get talking about all things hip dysplasia. And if I could just start by just asking you, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about your hip history, um, that would be absolutely incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And um, also, thank you so much for having me because I'd been following your podcast for a while before you reached out. So I was so excited when you did. Oh, Um, Um, yeah, so I was born with hip dysplasia and um, I was born in Lima, Peru. And I think, um, I think I was diagnosed about eight months or so. Um, wait, or maybe that's when they started. Okay. So the, the details for me are sometimes a little fuzzy because I was, you know, a child growing up with hip dysplasia. I don't always have the right scientific terms for it, um, for like what procedures I went through. And I've actually only recently begun to learn them because I have my records now, like a few years ago, my mom just gave me all my records, all my films. And I started reading through them and it was so strange to read my own history back to me when I already had my own narrative in my mind of what it was like to experience it. Um, so I guess I'll just go off of like what, what, what the combination of both is as best as I can, right? Um, I know that by the time they diagnosed me, it was late. Um, and so a lot of the methods that I think would, would be used so that this doesn't become a lifelong issue. It was a little late for me. Um, I have like pictures of, you know, myself as a child being in a cast, you know, in my crib. And um, I I believe I went, I had an open reduction around nine months or so. Um, And then we moved to the United States uh, when I was about four and, uh, you know, started seeing a, a new orthopedic surgeon then, even though it turns out I learned this much later when I found my first passport. Um, I had, my mom had actually brought me to the United States to see, um, my, the doctor that I eventually, um, that eventually became my doctor once we moved to the United States, um, you know, just to kind of get different opinions and things. And so, yeah, but I basically beginning around the time I was like five to when I was in my teens, I had various surgeries. So I had another, I had a various osteotomy. Um, when I was like about six or so, uh, then two years later, you know, you had to, you have to get your hardware removed. And then for some reason it didn't really work in the way that the doctors had hoped. And so I had that same procedure done again when I was, um, I think I must've been nine. So I was fourth grade. Yeah. 
And the interest, I guess the interest, not interesting, but one thing about that is that, you know, the hardware removal didn't happen until I was like 13 for that one. Um, and I remember because, you know, we moved around quite a bit uh, when I was a child. So we lived in Miami, then we moved to central Florida, which is where my book is set. Um, and then we moved to Texas. So I had one surgery in, um, in central Florida, and then we moved to Texas <clears throat> and we lived in South Texas at the time. And I remember that there was, there weren't any doctors there that specialized in hip dysplasia, especially for pediatrics. And we had, to, we were put on this waiting list because there was this one doctor that would come down to the Rio Grande Valley, which is where I lived. Um, he would come down from San Antonio. And so it was like a really big deal for me to see this doctor. And, you know, my mom got me, picked me up, took me, got me out of school one day. We went to go see him, even though I was like sick that day. I must, I don't know what happened, but it was like, there was no way we were canceling this appointment. Um, and he was like, no, she's fine. You know, don't worry about removing it or anything. And so by the time that I did, we moved back to Miami and um, we saw a new doctor uh, when I was 13. And <clears throat> he was like, this should have been removed years ago. And so um, I had my last surgery uh, right before I started high school. And, you know, what, what should have been like a simple um, hardware removal, I think was lasted like something like six hours and, um, to, you know, had a lot more damage than they anticipated. So my recovery was a lot longer. Um, I remember the time, like all I had wanted was to be able to, to, to um, try out for volleyball. So like we had timed it that like, um, that the surgery was like right at the beginning of the summer and then volleyball tryouts were like right at the end of summer and I wasn't ready and it was crushing. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, um, so that was, that was how it was in my childhood. I think that like, I know that there are a lot of different experiences. Um, that's one thing I've learned, you know, but growing up, I didn't know a lot of people and especially no, no kids who had hip dysplasia or who really um, had any experiences similar for mine. So I felt very alone in it. I felt like um, I often just tried to hide, um, like whether it was hiding my scars or really just hoping that nobody would notice my gait. Um, nobody would notice the lifts that I was wearing. Cause you know, sometimes in, um, in PE or physical education, like they'd be like, okay, now every it's time to take off your shoes. And that would be like the worst thing I could think of. Um, and, or even just doing all the different exercises. Cause I wasn't really great at them. And, um, I've always said that, you know, I grew up like that was my reality and I didn't have really many I, I, it never bothered me in a weird way. Like it never bothered me that I had to be in and out of surgery or like being in casts and then crutches for, you know, weeks at a time, being out of school for like for months at a time. Those things never actually bothered me. What bothered me was the way the world was with my body. Um, the way that, you know, kids would bully me and they would spread rumors about, you know, the way I walked or they would try to imitate me and laugh about it or, you know, they would, you know, stare and make weird comments about my scars. And so I just really, um, I think about the ways that so much of my childhood was just spent trying to blend in and trying to generally get by. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I did play some sports. I, I um, like I said, I played volleyball, um, but I would remember 
oh my God, I would pray every time someone swiped the ball that it wouldn't land, like it wouldn't go towards my left side because I couldn't lunge quite as, you know, I really wouldn't be able to grab it. I or exactly it. Yeah, I didn't have the same mobility. So I was like, hopefully they won't notice that I'm going to go this way. <laughs> um, and even like, you know, as a child, I loved to dance. And so I, um, when I was in middle school, I was very active in my, um, my high, like my school dance classes. And I realized so, so much of what I loved about dance was that, when you're dancing, no one could see me walk. Um, and so it was like a way again of just hiding. And even like the tights that we wore were like these really big tights and you couldn't see my scars. And so it just felt like this way of um, being a little more free of all the um, of all the scrutiny and the judgment that came with it. And um, yeah, I mean, even, and that's why I love to swim so much too, right? Like I, I could pretend and I could dance underwater and, and pretend that I was a mermaid. And, uh, so that was really how it was in my childhood. And then as I got older, you know, strangely, like after high school, like I, I, I didn't have a lot of issues with my hip for a long time. And it wasn't until I got to my twenties. Um, I think I was like 20, 24 or so when um, I started to have a lot of pain again. And the doctors ever since I was very young would tell me like, you know, you're going to have to have a hip replacement eventually. But then they would say, but don't worry, that's not until like your forties. And I'd be like, oh my God, I'll be so old by then. <laughs> when you tell it to an eight-year-old, they're going to just think that's never going to come. Um, but, you know, so I remember when I was in my twenties and I started having pain again, I thought like, oh my God, is this really, is it, is this, is this what's happening? Um, the, at the time I was living in Texas again, I moved around a lot. Um, and I saw a doctor who said, well, you know, what, what kind of physical activity do you do? And I told him not, not much. Cause at that point I really wasn't, um, I think I had a lot of trauma around physical activity. Um, and so, uh, and he told me, you know, it could actually help you if you strengthen the muscles around your hip, that, that would really help it. And so it became such an interesting reframing of exercise for me. Um, you know, cause when I was little, like exercise was either like, it felt like torture. It felt like, um, welcoming bullies in. And it also felt like because I had all other body image issues, like a lot of young girls do is that I felt like it was something that we're doing just to try to lose weight. Cause there's something wrong with their bodies. Um, yeah. So it was just all that. It was a layered thing. And, and, and I will say that that doctor who told me that like it brought new purpose and a new relationship to exercise into my life. Um, so like really for the past seven or eight years, I've been very, like, it's been a huge thing for me. It actually really helped me manage my pain for a long time. Um, I, I was able to shift from like, oh, I'm exercising, you know, to like lose weight or because my body's not good enough. And it shifted over to I'm exercising because this is protecting my hip. And, um, and so that's what I, I did for a really long time to just manage my pain, um, it worked until about two years ago and um, it's just kind of been progressively getting worse and worse. And, um, and so I did finally see a new doctor because we're back in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> Again, moved around a lot. Um, and um, yeah. And I think, and I'm actually going to get my replacement in about a month. 
in a month I knew it was upcoming I've been following um some of your stories on social media and I knew it was coming up but I didn't know what date it was so how does how does that feel then because obviously you've been told since you were what like eight that yeah. this will happen at some point and I mean I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little while but our our journeys are so so similar in so many ways um and I can relate to to so much of of what is said in the book which I know we'll dig into um but I was told as well, like, you know, when you get to around 40, you'll need your hip replacement. And so now that that hip replacement is actually coming up now, how does that feel in sort of rounding off your story and with everything that you've been through so far? Yeah, it's very surprising. Um, it's I was surprised by how a, it feels a little soon, like uh, or not, okay, not soon for my body, but it, it took me by surprise, you know, just mentally and emotionally. Um, I'm 37 and um I've said, I kind of, I worked with my therapist a lot <laughs> for this. Um, I really, for, for, for a while, I felt like it meant I had somehow failed to protect it properly, um, that I was having the surgery sooner than I planned um, and sooner than I'd been told. Um, like I wasn't mentally, emotionally prepared for this to happen in my thirties. Um, I really thought like, oh, it'd be like 10 years from now or so. Um, and I think that, like, I love what you said about it being a whole journey because I do, I think, you know, it absolutely is. Um, I had one doctor who I saw when I first moved back to Miami and he was very nice. Um, but, you know, I showed up with all my medical records, all my extra, all my films from like back when they would hand you these. Yeah. Um, because I felt like, yeah, like you have to see my whole story. How could you not? Right. Um, they just looked at my latest x-ray. And they were like, okay, yeah, you're a good candidate for hip replacement. So let us know when you want it. And that was it. And I just thought like, well, this doesn't feel right. Like, and so I went and I got a second opinion and, um, this, my, 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 my doctor, he looked at all my records. He started going through them and then he goes, tell me in your own words. And so he just listened to me while I told him, you know, like all the story of my hip and my, my life really, you know, they're completely intertwined. And it felt like, yes, like you might be seeing a patient who is 37 about to get a, a, a hip replacement. But in my case, because I was born with this, like, I'm also, I'm that, I'm that whole person still, like I'm that child, I'm the adult, I'm all of those people in one. This isn't just, um, this isn't a, a, an isolated incident for me. And it's a culmination of a lot of things. Um, and it, it's taken a lot to get here and feel okay with that because I think that a lot of the pain that we put up with or that we endure gets normalized in our bodies. Um, in my case, I almost feel like there was a sense of pride associated with how much I could be okay with. Um, you know, my, I, I vividly remember my very last surgery when I was being wheeled out of the OR and the doctors and the nurses were like, oh my God, how are we going to move her from the, from one bed to the other? We're just so worried about like how much pain she might be in because again, it'd, be, it'd been kind of a complicated um, procedure. And I just kind of like lifted myself up and moved myself from one bed to the other. And they were so like impressed. And I held on to that. Like, I was like, oh, I impressed my doctors and they look at how strong they think I am. And again, we associate like this sense of strength with like, well, if I have, like, at least for me, the way that ended up lingering in my mind um, was thinking like, well, if I have the surgery before I was told, then it means I'm not strong. And it's like, I had to really work for a long time to unpack this idea of like, why am I so attached to just being strong? Um, why am I so attached to this idea that 
that I should just endure all this pain um, to show that I'm somehow more worthy. I, I don't know what it meant, right? What it was supposed to mean, but it was like, that was, it was, that was being done to please others, you know, to like impress my doctor or, or for other people to say, wow, look at all she's endured and she's so strong. And it's like, that doesn't help me. Um, and it took a long time to get to that point. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much about what you just said. And I've just been making some notes on some of the things that you've said, because like I said, they they relate so much and they're things that have been so important to so many people that I've spoken to recently. Um, and just to kind of dip into some of that stuff that you just said. Yeah, I saw my consultant recently because again, I'm sort of creeping up ne- near to that, near to that 40. Um and I just wanted to see what state everything was in, you know, to see whether I was maintaining, whether things were degenerating, seeing whether that was, you know, coming up to close to being done. Um, and even though I do, I do love my consultant, I think he's absolutely amazing. The words that he left me with were, when you can no longer walk, work or sleep, we'll do your replacement. And I just thought there's something about that that didn't sit right with me as well either right so again didn't know my story just looked at my most recent scans similar to you and I just thought but you don't know you don't know me you don't know me as a as a person you you know my hip you've seen what's going on in my hip but you don't know me as a person and actually I don't want to be at a stage where I can no longer walk work or sleep before I do something I'm a very proactive person when it comes to, to hips and trying to you know encourage and enable other people to have the power to you know do these things for themselves and you know self-management and empowering people to know that there are things that they can do for themselves is so important to me um so yeah to be told you basically got to leave it until you're in such crippling pain that you can't do anything in your life didn't sit well with me at all um is that is that kind of how it felt it just you just looked at as a person it was just a hip on a screen Absolutely. No, absolutely. Like, and even you saying that, um, I, that I've heard those same words and it, it made, it's been really complicated because I went from feeling like, well, then I'm not, I can't, I don't deserve to get my hip replaced this soon because there's people who are in so much more pain than me. And they're, that means they're much braver than I am, you know, um, to, to get it. And like, if I, if I get it sooner, that means I'm not being brave. Right. I went from that to them feeling like, wait a second, like I deserve to feel better at any point. Like if I don't feel well, then I should be the one who gets to decide, you know, like, I don't want to feel like the absolute worst pain in order for me to feel worthy of saying, Hey, I I just don't want to be in pain. Um, whether, however you quantify it. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I feel, I completely relate to what you said. Cause I was like, I don't want to have to wait till it's so terrible to, to, to do something about it. I think, I think there's a lot of, I mean, in an ideal world, if we could rip apart the healthcare system and start it again, I mean, a lot of what I'm about to say is just, is just not possible in, you know, a, a short time frame, and everything feels like it has to be completely scrapped and start again, which I don't, I don't think is, is possible right now. Um, but in, in my dream world, I would love to see healthcare be something that's a preventative thing right that we we look at ways that we can can manage it and proactively sort of things rather than waiting until things get so bad that it has to be an emergency or has to be an urgent 
thing that has to happen because things are so bad if we looked at things you know like like a surgery and again this isn't the right approach for everybody right everybody's completely different yeah, absolutely so but you know there are some people that might have a lifestyle where actually it's more beneficial to them as a person as an individual to have something done sooner so that they can continue to keep that level of activity or do the things that they're most passionate about to give themselves that quality of life that really means something to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some people that that might not be it, they might want to put it off as long as humanly possible and that's the right journey for them. But unless you get the time and take the time to get to know that that person rather than just their hip, I just think that that's quite a difficult approach to take. And there are so many people that aren't confident enough to say, hey, I don't think that is right for me. I don't yeah. think that's the right approach for me. Um, and again, because there's there's so much difficulty in you know the healthcare systems across the world, and that you know there's there's not enough resources, there's not enough money, there's not enough time. It's difficult to to ask to spend that extra time right with your consultant or your surgeon and say these are the things that I'm worried about, these are the things that I'm thinking, feeling. Can we have a discussion about it? Because you always know that they're running behind. Yeah, you've got so many other things to do, and again, you just feel my thing isn't as important as somebody else's. I think that's just like you said, you know, we wear pain as a badge of honor, mm-hmm. uh, how we can deal with it, how we can manage it. And, you know, I, I know so many, so many people that have hip dysplasia that struggle with that as well. So um, you are absolutely not on your own with, with feeling that way. And I think it's all too common um, in this condition and many others with chronic pain issues and in, in many other health conditions but yeah it's, it's something that I think is unfortunately all too common yeah and also I like I mean one thing you mentioned that I think um you know like you can I think it's also it, it can change because like I used to be in the camp of like I'm going to put this off as long as possible um but I think it's because my body felt different and I, I wasn't really in like this daily pain um, it's night and day from where I was. And I, I realized like the amount of real estate it takes up in my mind every day to wake up and think, okay, so today's a good pain day. Today's not as bad. Today is relatively, you know, how are, you know, what will I do? How will I deal with it? Like just the, the managing of it every day. And like, I never used to have to think about it every single day. And I think that's where I started to realize like, okay, maybe this is when it's time to change something. Um, and so the approach now is, is more, okay, like how can I be proactive and not have to wait till it just keeps getting worse? Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I wondered if you might be happy to, to go back to something that you mentioned. You mentioned that you had had some therapy to kind of come to terms with all of this stuff. And I just wondered if you were happy to talk about that because I think so many people could benefit from, from having therapy about talking about these thoughts, feelings, and emotions um, with their health conditions. And, you know, I know, especially in, in the UK where I am, therapy is not something that is the norm. Um, I don't know about the, the culture where you are, whether that's something that people are, you know, a little bit more comfortable with talking about or not. But I know a lot of the, the listeners in the UK, therapy isn't something that's kind of mainstream or, you know, regularly talked about. Um, and I know there's a lot of things happening to try and change that. But I wondered, yeah, if you might be happy to just talk about the the therapy process that you went through um, with whatever you're happy to share um, and how that might have might have helped you. 
Oh gosh, it's been so important. Um, and I will say, I, I think I started seeing a therapist regularly starting around 2019. Um, and it was for, it was for something unrelated. Uh, it was not to do with my hip. It was really like um, other mental health kind of um, events happening in my family that I felt like I need support with. Um, and then really over time, realizing how much my own mental health health was deeply linked to my experiences as a child and as an adult um, with hip dysplasia with all my surgeries. Um, and I don't think I could have come to this point without um, mental health, without mental health, without accessibility to my therapists. Um, I think that we are very, we, we can often forget how much physical health is so linked to our mental health. Um, they're not at all separate. And so, you know, yes, we are treating um, someone's bone, right? And, and, their, and their chronic pain. Um, but again, we're treating a whole human, right? Or we are people who are entirely human patients being treated. Um, and so I, I think that anyone that overlooks that, like it, it's not, it's probably not for the best. Um, I think it's, it's, I, I really led my whole life being like, oh yeah, I had all these surgeries growing up and I have this, you know, that I deal with, but I'm fine. That wasn't the big, that wasn't a big deal. Um, <laughs> and then really having to unpack so many things with my therapist about like, oh, that's where I learned this from, you know, that's where I, um, you know, learned to like hide certain parts of myself. That's where I learned this idea that being strong is like the absolute like pinnacle of what it means to be a good person for me. Like that's like the goal, right? Um, and, and the ways that was hindering my own development, both physically and mentally. Um, so yeah, I think it's 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 incredibly important. I again, that's kind of I I often wish like there's times that I've been talking to my doctor and um and they'll ask things like, um, oh well, so do you, you know, again, they'll kind of be like, well, is your pain would you rate your pain from one to 10, for example? And if it's, if it's closer to 10, then you're probably a good candidate for hip placement and things like that, whatever. And I, I also wish I could say like, yeah, but I, cause I had one doctor say to me once, cause I told him I'm still on the fence. I don't know yet if I'm ready. And he said something like, well, if he's like, that tells me you're not ready because people who know who are ready, they're never on the fence. They're in so much pain, but they're never on the fence. And I just, I wanted to tell him, I was like, I don't understand, I don't think you understand that I'm on the fence because of all this emotional trauma that's been put on me to endure so much pain as long as I can in order to even speak of it, you know? Um, and also just, and, and for me personally, even just, you know, I'm an immigrant in the United States. The first thing I remember ever saying in English was, um, it was the first time I was going to see my surgeon and I didn't speak English yet. And my mom had given, wanted us to give our, my, my surgeon this gift. And so she taught me to say, this is for you, Dr. King. And I was supposed to hand it to him. Um, and I think because, and I, I don't know, like, I, I don't know if this is like a, it's certainly not exclusive to Latinx culture, but it is a very um, prominent thing that I've noticed in our culture is that like a doctor is just revered. You would never dare question him. There's like, Someone he's like someone whose opinion and um, you know what they whose opinion you just respect so much above all others and so there's this huge power imbalance there um, and so for me even as a child to have seen this doctor and be like here this is for you um, and then here I am 37 talking to a doctor who's like no you're not ready and me really like thinking in my head 
I wish you knew how hard it is for me to stand up to you. And like how, um, how, much, how much it takes for me to self-advocate when I've grown up with this power imbalance. Um, and so again, these things are all linked and they're, they're not just affecting how we experience, like our mental health doesn't just affect how we experience um, all the procedures that we go through or even just um, the decisions that we make, but they, it, it's, you know, it works both ways. Like the, to live with chronic pain is also just um, in its own ways, very traumatic and um, it's shaping us constantly. And so for me to have that awareness of it and to kind of unlearn a lot was huge. Absolutely. I'm so, so happy to, to hear that. And I hope other people hear that and feel more empowered to be able to speak to somebody about this stuff. You know, I, I also had some, a lot of therapy over the last year and a half and, you know, it made me realize how much of some of the things that I struggle with now in terms of just sort of relationships and day-to-day, day-to-day things come back to my hip dysplasia stuff. So, you know, my ultimate fear is being a burden to somebody. And, you know, I don't mind sharing that on this podcast because I think it's important to be able to, to talk about some of the ways that that's affecting like my rehab and my relationships and, you know, everything, everything around me. And, you know, I think because you grow up realizing exactly as you said, that you need to be strong and you need to be independent, you need to be brave. And, you know, sometimes these things are important, but I know personally, I've taken it so far the other way that I really struggle to accept help. Um, that I feel like help is a bit of a weakness. Um, and that's that's not accurate. You know, I, I know that the people that love me, want to support me, want to, to be there to help. But there in the back of my mind, there's just so much of a fear of being a burden to people that I don't like to show when I'm in pain or I don't like to let people know when I'm struggling because I just want to be brave and strong and not be that burden to somebody. Yeah, I agree completely. I feel that I've felt that and it took me a really long time to realize like that's also just part of what society has taught us because um, I think a lot of times disabled people are treated as burdens and are um, you know, seen that way and are rewarded for when they don't share their pain. You know, there's phrases like, oh, look how strong she is. And, oh, she didn't even complain about this or that, you know? And so how are we going to internalize those things, right? Um, and it just perpetuates itself. It's a really hard cycle to break. I think, I think that is something that you do so incredibly well in the book. And I want to kind of bring the journey that you shared with us now into talking about your book, Breathe and Count Back from 10, because I, I mean, I get goosebumps on my arms, like even now, just, just talking about the story, just, and I, I urge people to, to, to get this book, because it's one of the things that just made me feel so seen and heard. Um, And it was just something that I was reading this story about this character, Veronica. And so much of it was my childhood, those thoughts, those feelings, those situations day to day that Veronica is going through and their thoughts and feelings that I've had. And it just made me feel so, yeah, so seen, so heard and so understood um, by, by reading about this character. And, you know, I haven't, I haven't finished the book yet. Um, I'm about halfway through and I'm just so, so excited to carry on reading it, but thank you so so much for bringing this into the world and sharing that experience um 
I'd, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you took that story, you know, your journey so far and decided to turn it into, into this book, Breathe Back and Count Back from 10. Thank you. That means so much to me too. Like, thank you so much. Um, I, I think like for you to say like, oh, it made me feel seen. It makes me feel seen uh, because that's really why I write. And I, I struggled to write this book for a long time. Like this is actually my fourth book. And it's um, the first time that I've written about um, my hip dysplasia. And so um, it took me a while to get there. Um, (laughs) uh, I think because of that idea that we're just supposed to be like quiet about this and and, and that we shouldn't be a burden. And I felt like even speaking about it and putting so much time and energy into it could, could be that burden. Right. Um, And of course it wasn't, it's, it's not at all. It's, it's, um, it's something that I realized I've kind of been wanting to write my whole life. And, you know, I even started writing um, as a child, I started writing in my mom's office. She had a, my mom, when I was little, she used to work at my uncle's um, doctor. My uncle is a neurosurgeon. So she worked at his office. She had a little typewriter in the corner and I had just had surgery. So I wasn't in school for a long time. You know, I'd be homeschooled during that time. And my mom would take me to work with her. And in order to entertain myself, I would just start typing poems on, um, on the typewriter. So even just my journey as a writer is so deeply connected to my hip journey. Um, I can't separate the two. Um, and this book has really been the culmination of all that. Like the first essay I even ever tried to publish as a child, I remember I sent an essay to like 17 magazine or something, and it was about my surgeries, um, because I was like, this is a story that I have to tell. Um, and then over the years, again, I started just becoming very quiet about it. Um, so to write breathing count back from 10 was a way of, um, of kind of undoing all that quietness and realizing like, no, I really actually, this is part of my story. This is part of my life and I need to give voice to it. And, um, but I wanted to do that through fiction and I wanted to do it through this 17 year old character, Vero, or I call her Vero for short. Her name is Veronica. Um, she is, um, a Peruvian American girl living in central Florida and she's 17. She has hip dysplasia. Um, she's had surgeries all her life and, um, she really loves to swim and she is, she lives in a town that has, um, like a really famous mermaid attraction park where, um, women put on tails and they dance underwater in the spring. And she's really dreamed of being a mermaid her whole life. And so this summer before her senior year, a spot opens and she has the opportunity to audition. But um, her parents who um, are very, they're very strict and they have like, you know, as, as a lot of immigrant parents do is that they have like a, an idea of what they want their children's lives to be. And they hope for a better life for their children that, than they had. And so, you know, their idea of what her future looks like doesn't really um, work with mermaid, <laughs> the idea of being a mermaid. And so she ends up hiding a lot from them. And at the same time, she's also falling in love for the first time. And she's dealing with wanting to feel safe in her own body, um, wanting to kind of step into her own sexuality in a way that feels safe and comfortable um, because she also carries a lot of shame um, with her body. She's had, she's been made fun of for her body. She's been made fun of in intimate ways for her body um, when she's, you know, <clears throat> been with boys. And so it's, it's, there's a lot that she's processing in this summer. And um, I think it's ultimately like, I just wanted to write about 
a girl who, you know, she's, she's all these things. Like she is someone who loves mermaids. She's, she's disabled. She's an immigrant. She's Latina. She is um, a best friend and and an older sister and, um, you know, an immigrant daughter. And um, there's all these, there's all this baggage that comes along with that in terms of what she is meant and allowed to do with her body, but she wants to be the one who now gets to decide. Um, And what does that look like for her? You know, what does it look like to feel safe in your body and to feel that, um, that, that you can tell your own body story. So that's really what this book is about. Um, Does that answer your question? I don't remember. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I mean, that's such a fantastic synopsis of, of what's going on. And like I said, there was just so much that's, that's relatable. Um, And also, so much about the the story that I don't hear about anymore. So the fact that we're of a very similar age and we've obviously gone through very similar surgeries and, you know, the, the things that you describe, things are done so differently nowadays with, you know, you know, children that are going through things now, as opposed to when we went through our surgeries when, when we were younger. Um, and, it was it was just amazing to read back to some of those things to to hear it spoken about in a way that I remember it um, rather than sort of some of the ways that things are being done now. So it kind of shows again this this journey and this timeline of how um, things are changing in the medical world and how procedures have been adapted and changed. And even you know when when you were talking um, about with this character. Um, about being in the casts and being in the wheelchair and you know people commenting and staring and you know it just takes me back to when I was in my cast you know and I had the full body cast you know that was right from the chest all the way down to the toes and um you know without being able to bend in the middle and I was carted around on you know this um you know like in in um garden centers they have like these big trolleys that you kind of take around that are massive flat panel things I was just carted around on one of those um, and I remember being stared at all the time and, you know, just those feelings that it brings back and it does remind you of everything that you've overcome and it does remind you how strong and resilient that you are to have been able to, to go through all this stuff. But it is amazing to just revisit those times in your life and revisit those feelings and those emotions and, and see where it's, where it's brought you to today. And so, like I said, some of the things that you tackle in there and some of the, the phrases that you that you use is so powerful. I, I wrote down something that I read that I wanted to kind of read out and see if we could discuss it a little bit, if that was okay. Um, so this part in the book where it says that people want Veronica to feel comfortable, not happy or fully supported, just fine, satisfied enough. That feels like a low bar to be set for me. And I just thought, I thought that was so powerful because it's something that is absolutely spot on for how a lot of people feel it's like okay well can you cope okay that's good enough Mm -hmm. so how do how do you feel about that that phrase and when you wrote it and what does that mean to you yeah oh my gosh it's so interesting to like hear you read those things back because (laughs) I like I, I mean I remember writing that but not I also don't remember feeling like it was anything particularly like um insightful and I don't mean it to like to to take away from it at all I actually mean to say it's just it it was it's just such a natural thing for me to say like because it's just a reflection of my experience um 
I, I feel like we've heard that all our lives, right? Um, I think sometimes even that comfort is, well, then whose comfort is it really? Is it my comfort or is it the comfort of those around me who maybe like, you know, so that I don't have to, again, be that burden. Um, and, and it's something that like, I still hear, you know, even when I was being told like, okay, you know, when is it going to be time to have this surgery? Right. Um, so yeah, really that just kind of just came from, from just like, it's so interesting because fiction, um, you know, fiction is supposed it, you know, it's not, it, we make it up. Right. But it's, for me, it's always deeply rooted in something that's true. And that's where, um, where the jumping off point is. It's like, in a way I have to write, it was really hard to write this book because it was so personal. And so I had to fictionalize in order to create some distance. And so like Vero's parents are very different from my parents. And like, I never got auditioned to be a mermaid. And, you know, there's, there's things that she's, she goes through that I've never been through, but there are also a lot of things she goes through that I've been through. And so the book is kind of like a mixture of all of that. Okay. So when, when is the book coming out just so that I can sort of let people know what the, what the process is for that and how they can get hold of it if they were to ask. Yeah. Um, so it'll be out May 10th and um, anywhere really that books are sold, it'll be available in the U S and the UK and Canada. Um, I think it should be actually available, you know, worldwide. Like there, what, like there's um, book depositories is, does international shipping as well, but um, it'll also be available in audiobook, ebook, and um, hardcover initially. And um, yeah, I think you know, I'm just like I, I appreciate you like getting the word out so much. It, it, it means a lot. So thank you. It's an absolute privilege for me to be doing it. Like I said, it just it just means so much when you see a part of yourself that sometimes stays hidden, and then it's all of a sudden in in the mainstream and you know you see things about yourself in books or on tv programs you know i i remember the, it was it was like a couple of years ago and sam and i were watching a christmas film and um, it's called the happiest season and for the first time in a mainstream christmas movie the main character was gay <clears throat> and i didn't realize how much this stuff isn't in the mainstream until you finally see it there and you finally realize oh there's a part of me that's being reflected in mainstream media or books or tv or whatever it is and you don't realize how much that means to you until you see it or until you hear it or feel it or read it or whatever it is so reading this book was like me seeing that that movie and it was just another part of me that just feels more accepted in society that's that's amazing. That means so much. Like I, I, it, it's really healing to me, honestly, to hear that because a lot of like when I was writing this book, there were times where I thought like, oh my god, is this too specific? Like, will anyone care? Like, why am I sharing this? Like these little tiny things, right? Like even that line you said, which or even like there was a part where I was like, um, just talking about the way like Vito's um, um, foot kind of like it, like it doesn't her feet don't just naturally rest. Um, straight like one of them you know kind of turns out and I was like is that too specific like would anyone care and then you don't think that it matters until someone says no me too and then you suddenly don't feel so alone in it um like I I, I mean when I was little like the only person is my <laughs> the only um 
soul, I knew that had hip dysplasia was my cousin's dog. <laughs> and I, 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 I was so starving for that representation that I was like, oh, he has hip dysplasia just like me. <laughs> you know, um, I had like this weird connection to him in that sense. Um, but yeah, this, it's just been really, it, it means the world, you know, um, so I just, I have, I, I'm, I'm really thankful to you. And even just listening to your podcast, um, there's been so many times that I've had that same moment that, um, that you describe where I just, I'm listening and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not alone in feeling that way. That's just, it's incredible. Well, thank you for everything that you do for bringing this awareness. You know, there's more and more people being brave enough to, to share their stories now. And all it does is bring this community closer together, provide more support, more awareness. And that can only be a good thing. That's one of the amazing things that we do have about social media is the communities that we can create and the support that we can create, um, getting rid of that loneliness, which, you know, like you and I, we didn't have that, you know, we didn't know anybody else with, with that when we were going through it. And I'm just so grateful that things have changed in that respect and that there is more access and more awareness there's still a lot to be done it's still a big journey it's still a big fight to have that inclusivity around the world um i just want to give a little bit of a shout out here to the hip hope network um and the ihdr mm-hmm. um for making it their absolute aim to make all of the resources make all of the information accessible to all of the countries all of the languages so that everything is more accessible to everybody around the world um and the work that they're doing is absolutely incredible so shout out to you guys thank you for what you're doing and to to spread all of this information to make it accessible to everybody so yeah I I don't want to take up too much more of your time I know we're kind of getting towards the end of um, our time together today but again thank you so much for everything that you do everything that you've written and the way that I know that so many people will feel when they're when they're reading this going forwards thank you for sharing your story and it's been every bit as amazing as I thought it would be talking to you today so thank you so much thank you so much and I really enjoyed this and I appreciate it so much all right, so we'll definitely keep in touch um, and perhaps we'll do a little catch up again next year um, and see what you're up to. I wish you the best of luck with your hip replacement coming up next month. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll all hopefully be following your story. Um, can you just let everybody know where they can find you on social media and bits and pieces and if they'd like to continue to follow your journey and um, all the work with your book? Yeah, um, so I am at Natalia Silv on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I'm trying to figure that one out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, my website is nataliasilvester.com. Um, and um, yeah, and the book will be out May 10th. It is available for pre-order now, and pre-orders are huge to a book success. So that's always helpful. And um, yeah, I'm always happy to connect with other hippies too. So please reach out as well. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week again with another inspiring and incredible guest. If you'd like to be on the podcast and come and share your story, then please just send me an email at laura at helpforhipdysplasia.com. You can also find me on Instagram at laura.rutterford or by searching help for hip dysplasia and send me a message on there. I really look forward to speaking with you. We'll see you again next week.